The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. President Donald Trump's nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court is hogging all the attention right now. But Brett Kavanaugh is hardly the whole story of the Trump administration's extraordinary impact on the federal judiciary. In less than two years, the president has appointed 26 judges to courts of appeal across the country. That's a record-setting rate. By contrast, President Obama saw 55 judges appointed to appellate courts. That was in eight years, not two. Reuters has created a cool new interactive feature to show how President Trump's judges are changing the makeup of the appellate courts. It's called Courting Change, and you can find it at Reuters.com. We've got all kinds of info there, like who has been appointed to fill these seats, how President Trump's picks are affecting the balance of power between Democratic and Republican appointees, and even bios of every federal appellate judge. There's a lot there. To offer his insights from the data Reuters has compiled at Courting Change, I've got a true scholar of the federal courts. Arthur Hellman is a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh who not only writes books about the court system, but is frequently called by Congress to testify about it. Arthur, welcome. Allison, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited to hear, uh, to hear what you have to say. I'm hoping that the first thing we can do is provide some context for this marquee number of judges appointed already to the appellate courts. Can you give us a little overview of, of what the appellate courts do? Sure. I think the best way to answer that is to explain how the circuit courts fit into the federal judicial system. Uh, the federal judicial system can be viewed as a pyramid. At the base, you have the trial courts. These are the judges who decide cases initially, sometimes with a jury, but more often alone. And there are more than 300,000 cases filed each year in the trial courts. So that's the base. At the top, of course, you have the Supreme Court. We heard Judge Kavanaugh describe that as a team of nine. Well, that team of nine decides about 70 cases a year. That's seven zero, not very many. In the middle, you have the courts of appeals. Now, these courts are organized into 13 circuits, most of those organized geographically, covering three or more states. The circuits vary greatly in size. You have, for example, the first circuit in New England with only six judgeships, and at the other extreme, the Ninth Circuit, based in California, with 29. Now, the key thing about the circuit courts is that unlike the Supreme Court, they cannot pick and choose their cases. And so the numbers are very different. The courts of appeals decide about 35,000 cases a year. Wow. Um, so who, do, who actually does the deciding? Well, there are 179 authorized judgeships in the courts of appeals. Okay. And and really quickly, what what is the appellate process? We know when the Supreme Court hears a case, all nine justices, or however many justices are on the court, hear arguments and are involved in the process of making a decision. How does it work in the circuit courts? 
In the circuit courts, it's very different. As I've said, the circuit courts range in size from 6 to 29, but the cases are ordinarily heard and decided by panels of only three judges selected at random from among the, the available um, sitting judges there. Now, there's a process uh, in, in, that Congress authorized that allows um, the, all, the active judges, all of them, to vote to rehear a case. That's called rehearing and bank. But that happens very, very seldom. So it's, it, I, I guess it's worth pointing out then, um, if three judges are hearing every case, it's not like any one single judge who has been appointed by a particular president. In this case, we're talking about President Trump's appointments. It, it, that, that one judge isn't necessarily going to make a difference immediately on what the, the circuit court is deciding. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, each a Trump judge, like every other judge, sits with two other judges. So the, the Trump judges will be sitting in the course of a year with many, many other judges, and they have only one vote on each panel. Okay. The marquee statistic that we've even seen the president uh, talk about a bunch of times on Twitter is that this administration has been able to appoint a lot of judges in a short period of time to the circuit courts. Can you explain a little bit, Arthur, about how, how that is? How, how come um, the process has, has benefited the Trump administration uh, and, and permitted the appointment of, of so many judges? Well, I think there are a couple of things that have been at work here. One is the decision by the Senate, I think it was back in 2013, when the Democrats controlled the, the Senate to abolish the filibuster for our judicial uh, nominees. Just to interrupt, sorry. The filibuster um, required that, uh, that judicial nominees get 60 votes instead of just a majority? Yes, the filibuster was and continues to be part of the Senate's uh, procedures. And as you've said, it requires 60 votes rather than a simple majority for affirmative uh, action. But the change in 2013 meant that for nominations, only 51 votes, if, if all 100 senators are, are there, only 51 votes are required to confirm. Now, it happens that at this particular point, the Republicans have exactly 51 votes. So this makes it much easier than it uh, would have been if they had to get some Democratic votes to confirm these judicial nominees. As things stand now, the Republicans can confirm uh, judicial nominees and other nominees, executive nominees, uh, with only the, the bare majority. Has Trump had more vacancies than presidents usually usually get on, on appellate courts. I think, I think there's this popular conception, maybe because of, um, of the Senate's handling of uh, President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court. There's this popular conception of, of uh, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell kind of standing at the barricades, refusing to appoint, um, appoint judges that, 
that President Obama nominated at the end of his term. Is that true for appellate courts? Well, it's certainly a widespread impression. I have to admit, I sort of shared that impression, but I looked, looked it up on the federal judiciary website. And if, uh, on January 6th, 2017, which of course was just before President Trump uh, took office, there were 17 vacancies on the federal courts of appeals. Eight years earlier, January 1st, 2009, uh, there were 13. So 13 versus 17 is not all that different, is it? Huh. No, it, it's not that different. So the, the, President Trump uh, has, has just been blessed in his first year with a lot of a lot of vacancies, more vacancies than than presidents usually uh, are able to fill in that quick time span? Well, there have been a, a number of additional vacancies that have uh, developed, but I think there are two other factors that are at, at work here. One is that the president and the, the Senate leadership has put a priority on the circuit nominations and confirmations so that they've been pushing the circuit confirmations through. We talked before about the district judges who are the um, who decide cases initially, and on that, the, the administration has not been uh, quite so quick. There are still many vacancies in the district courts, trial courts, for which there are no nominations yet. So the administration made a calculated decision to go for the circuit nominees, to prioritize those, to take the administration's time and the Senate's time on those, and to let the district uh, vacancies just stay there for a while. So, Arthur, that's a really interesting point about the administration focusing on uh, appellate judges almost at the expense of trial court judges. Why do you think that is a priority? I think there are two things here. And first of all, I should emphasize that I am speculating, but just you know, watching them and having watched this process over a number of years. First, the, the appellate courts are the ones who make the law. And with the Supreme Court taking only 60 or 70 cases a year, there are a great many very important legal issues that either never reach the Supreme Court or that remain unresolved for years and years. And while, while the Supreme Court is leaving them on the table, it's the courts of appeals that make the law for the various circuits. And the Trump administration would like as many as possible of their people making the law rather than judges appointed by prior presidents. presidents. I think there's a second thing that may be at work here that has led to the um, relative non-prioritization of district uh, court nominations. And that is this, that District court nomination, district court selection is very largely a process that involves the senators from the state where the district judge sits. And uh, it may well be that the administration thinks that even if the Republicans lose the Senate in the upcoming election, they will still be able to get district judges through the Senate because those will be the choices, essentially, of, of the senators themselves, both Republicans mm -hmm. and Democrats. Mm -hmm. They probably won't be, if the Democrats control the Senate after 
um, December, November uh, 2018, um, it's very likely that the confirmation process for Court of Appeals judges, for circuit judges, will stop either for the entirety of the two years or for a long part. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of attention to the involvement of of outside groups in advising the president on on nominees, and I think in particular on nominees to the appellate courts. Is that unusual? I don't know that it's unusual. I think presidents have always looked for for guidance to uh, groups and people uh, they um, they trust. What may be new here is that the groups that have been particularly involved, the Federalist Society and the, the Heritage Foundation, um, those groups have been paying attention to this issue for many years, and they have a group of people that they know and can consult, and that the president and his advisors can consult with. So they're not starting from scratch, and that may be a little bit different. Um, we don't know that much about the inner workings of prior administrations, but but certainly the administration, uh, this administration, the Trump administration, has put enormous resources into seeking out good the pe- kind of people they want and pushing them forward. You mentioned before that the the um, administration has worked with um, the, the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation on um, consulting on on the picks. Can you can you explain uh, just for just for a, a brief moment what those groups are? They're two very very different groups, although they're often lumped together. Our Heritage Foundation is a public policy group that makes recommendations, it, uh, puts out uh, briefing books, and and tries to influence policy in a generally conservative direction. The Federalist Society is not a um, a public policy group at all. It doesn't file amicus briefs. It doesn't lobby. Uh, it doesn't support um, or, or oppose candidates. It's really a kind of uh, networking and debating society of people who are uh, conservative or libertarian in their uh, their views. So there are just a, a lot of people um, associated with the um, the society that have the kind of legal views that the, the Trump administration would like to see embodied in law. Leonard Leo has been one of the president's very closest advisors. He, he actually took leave from the Federalist Society for a while to, uh, you know, to be directly involved with the appointment process. Well, that's right, although it's not clear to me whether um, how, how much his uh, direct role there um, after he took that leave involved the lower court judges as opposed to the Supreme Court nominations. I think he took a leave first for the Gorsuch nomination and then for Kavanaugh. Um, but it would make sense that the administration would consult him about potential lower court nominees because he would know so many of the, the people that the, the administration would see as prime uh, candidates or prime prospects for circuit courts in particular. So I'd like to turn now to um, to how the Trump appointees have affected 
have affected the balance between Republican and Democratic appointments on the courts of appeal. I, I do want to point out that we're using Democratic appointee and Republican appointee as shorthand for the judge's own ideological bent, but it's an imperfect proxy. Uh, sometimes judges, even on the appellate courts, get, get nominated in, in deals between the parties, and sometimes um, presidents have renominated holdover candidates from the previous administration. But, but as an imperfect proxy, um, let's talk about Democratic appointees and Republican appointees and how the 26 um, judges that Trump has appointed have affected the, the balance of political uh, division on some of the circuits. Arthur, when you looked at um, the Reuters Interactive, what were your takeaways? Well, first of all, it's great that you've, you've, uh, you've made this available to people because you know, everybody can look at it and, uh, and do their own analysis. But there are a couple of things that stood out to me. Uh, first, that of the 26 confirmed judges, 16 sit in only four of the 13 circuits. And as it happens, there are four circuits in the center of the country. You have the Fifth Circuit, which is uh, Texas, uh, Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And then above that, or to the west, you have the Eighth Circuit, um, Arkansas, uh, Minnesota, the Dakotas, Missouri. Um, next to that, the Seventh Circuit, Illinois, Wisconsin, Indiana. And then next to that, the Sixth Circuit, Ohio, Michigan, uh, Tennessee, and Kentucky. So sort of the, the, the uh, central part of the country, those four adjoining circuits, those are the ones where 16 out of the 26 confirmed judges are sitting. And that includes the, um, uh, the eighth and sixth circuits where Republican appointees already constituted a substantial majority. So what that means is that the Trump appointees, in spite of their numbers, may be having less of an effect overall than you might expect. Because in some instances, they're entrenching courts that, that already had a majority Republican appointees. Exactly, although I think some, some, somebody might respond, entrenching is pretty important because if you're replacing a 65 or 70-year-old judge with a 45 or 50-year-old judge, you are extending the possibility, uh, the likelihood of Republican dominance for many years beyond today. So I don't want to underestimate the, the importance of a young Republican judge replacing an older Republican judge, but it's still not as much as it would be if Republican judges were replacing Democratic appointed judges. But in, in some circuits, President Trump has been able to appoint Republican judges to replace democratically appointed judges. Uh, are, are, we, are, are there circuits where we're coming closer to, uh, to flipping, as they say, where, where uh, the courts will become majority Republican, um, where, where they had been majority Democratic appointed? Yes, there are three circuits where we're, where we're seeing that effect. One is the third, my home circuit, uh, with its headquarters in Philadelphia, 
which started out with a seven to five uh, Democratic um, advantage. And if, if, if Trump fills all of the vacancies, that would end up even. Um, the 11th Circuit um, also would end up, in fact, has already reached the point of parity, six to six, a total of 12 judges on that circuit now evenly divided in the party. The most interesting is actually the Fourth Circuit, because for many years, the Fourth Circuit was a very conservative circuit. Then uh, President Obama was able to appoint judges to bring it to a 10 to 5 Democratic advantage. And now that advantage is only 8 to uh, eight to, uh, uh, to 7. So we are seeing the, the effect um, in that way. And the Fourth Circuit is particularly important because that's where so many of these national security cases and high-profile criminal prosecutions take place. That was one of the one of the circuits where Trump's travel ban was challenged, for exactly. instance. Yeah. Exactly. And and then there are there are some circuits where uh, the Democratic appointees seem to be still firmly firmly in control. What about Trump's the the bane? Of, uh, of of President Trump's uh, view of the the appellate courts, the Ninth Circuit out on the West Coast. Well, the Ninth Circuit is going to be a hard circuit for for Trump to crack. There are nine active judges appointed by President Clinton, and as of today, eight of those could take senior status and open up a a vacancy. So, it is possible that uh, a President Trump could move that that circuit uh, closer to parity, but it would take it would take a lot of luck, and it would require him to work with Senators Feinstein and Harris, who are very concerned about who gets appointed to the Ninth Circuit, and would require those those judges willingly to to agree to step down. So so now let's let's take a look at at in terms of actual impact on cases. I know we're, we're in very early stages, and a lot of these judges have, have really just started to hear cases and write opinions. And, and I want to I reemphasize a point you made earlier, which is that most cases are, um, you know, not cases where a judge's ideology is going to play a really important, a really important role in the decision making. But from what you've seen, have have there been instances where um, a Trump appointee has had an opportunity to take a look at, you know, one of these hot button issues that that we're counting on on the courts to, um, you know, to make really important decisions in? Sure. And before I uh, answer that, that second question, I do want to just reemphasize the point you, you've already made which is that overwhelmingly decisions are unanimous uh, in the courts of appeals, and it doesn't matter who appointed the judges or which judges sit on the panel, the case will come out the same way. That said, there are these important high-profile policy-oriented issues where new judges can make a difference. And even in this early, um, very early stages, as as you emphasized in uh, pointed out, um, we've seen, I think, four distinct ways in which Trump appointed judges 
have attempted to reshape the law. And I'll just give a, uh, one example of each. First, they've called for full court rehearing of panel decisions. And an example of that comes from the Fifth Circuit, where Judge James Ho uh, wrote about a, a federal gun control statute. The, the panel upheld it. Judge Ho thought the court should reconsider that uh, as a full court, and he wanted, obviously, to strike it down. He didn't get his way. Was denied. Rehearing was denied by a vote of eight to seven. There, there were then two vacancies on that court. If, if Trump fills the other two, the next case presenting that issue might go the other way. So that's one way. Mm -hmm. Second, they've called for reconsideration of established circuit precedent. And we have an example of this from the 11th Circuit and Judge Newsom, another of the Trump appointees. Uh, this case involved religious displays on public property, one of the most contentious issues that the courts of appeals confront. Judge Newsom recognized that circuit precedent required him to say that this particular display was unconstitutional, a violation of the Establishment Clause, but he said that old decision is inconsistent with more recent Supreme Court decisions. We should reconsider it. Huh. Third, That's unusual, right, for a judge to, to call out precedent in that way? Not all that unusual. I'd say there are... Um, I see at least half a dozen examples a year where you'll see judges concurring in a panel decision and saying, you know, I have to decide the case this way because this court handed down a, a case years ago. However, either in this case or some later case, we should reconsider it. The third thing we see um, is that judges have called upon the Supreme Court to reconsider established doctrine. And there's an example of this from the Fifth Circuit again, Judge Don Willett, a doctrine called qualified immunity. And without getting into any of the details, the effect of this doctrine is to make it very difficult when citizens have been injured by police misconduct, in particular mm -hmm. other kinds of governmental misconduct too, but police misconduct in particular, makes it very difficult for the victims to get any kind of monetary recompense. And this is a Supreme Court doctrine. And here is Judge Willett, a Trump appointee, saying, I think the Supreme Court should reconsider this. So that's not the kind of what you would think of as the stereotype of a Trump appointee calling for reconsideration of a doctrine that hurts the people who are injured by police misconduct. Right. Exactly. One of those instances of a judge, once once they get on the court, not necessarily cueing uh, uh, straight to the line of the administration that appointed them. A, a fourth thing that, that judges can do is to distinguish and narrowly interpret a Supreme Court precedent. And that happened uh, very recently in a state regulation of abortion. That was a, a unanimous three-judge panel but one of the judges on that panel was Judge Erickson, one of Trump's first appointments to, to that court. So that did not purport to be uh, redirecting the law, but the district judge thought that the Supreme Court decision was directly on point and required invalidating the law. The panel said, no, 
it may not be on point, we need more fact-finding, and so the, the panel sent the case back to the lower court. So to sort of sum up these effects, it sounds, it sounds like what we're seeing is judges appointed by the Trump administration engaging in a kind of dialogue on hot-button issues with other judges in, in their circuits, and, and even with the Supreme Court, kind of staking out positions that, you know, that, that could signal attacks on, on precedent. That's exactly right, and that's a good way of putting it, that you, you have these decisions in place, sometimes very old decisions, sometimes relatively new ones, and these Trump judges, as other judges have done before them, have said, you know, maybe, maybe that is not um, the correct decision, or maybe we should be rethinking this area of law. And what will happen next, I would expect, is that other judges on their circuit or other circuits will respond to that saying, well, here are some things that you didn't think about or maybe agreeing with them. And eventually um, the circuits or the Supreme Court will reconsider some of these issues. Huh. As, as we're in this particular moment where we have some circuits that are distinctly Republican appointees and some circuits that are that are distinctly Democratic appointees and some circuits, some circuits in between. Uh, do, do you think it's likely that we're going to see these appellate courts come out on on different sides of hot button issues? And and if that happens, what does the Supreme Court do? Well, that's a very good question. In fact, we already have an example of that um, involving another hot-button issue of legislative prayer, where you had two circuits, the Fourth Circuit based in Richmond and the Sixth Circuit um, based in uh, Cincinnati, I think is where they have their uh, hearings, but two adjoining circuits deciding almost identical cases involving legislative prayer, the Fourth Circuit saying it's unconstitutional, the Sixth Circuit saying it is constitutional. Both cases went up to the Supreme Court at the very end of the last term, and the court declined to hear either one of them. So that constitutional rights in Kentucky mean are different from constitutional rights in North Carolina. I think that is really something that should not have happened. The Supreme Court should have taken one or both of those cases. But I think we're going to see more of that as you have, as you say, some circuits dominated by more conservative judges, other circuits dominated by more liberal judges, Supreme Court precedents that do not clearly answer the question, and the circuits will reach different results. Wow. So it, it puts a lot of pressure on on the Supreme Court, which the Supreme Court may not necessarily welcome if the legislative prayer case is a good example. No, the Supreme Court does not seem to be um, overly concerned about uh, conflicts. The ironic thing is that they often take what we call inter-circuit conflict cases on the most mundane and almost trivial statutory issues, but on these constitutional issues that people care so deeply about, they're willing to to leave it to the lower courts. I, I think, by the way, that uh, one of the areas we're going to be 
we will see this fairly quickly, will be in gun control. I mean, the court has resolutely refused to take these uh, gun regulation cases, almost all of which have been cases where the circuit court has upheld the regulation. But I think now in some of these circuits, we're going to start seeing cases where courts will strike down some of the laws. And I think that will put enormous pressure on the Supreme Court to decide what the federal constitution requires or allows. Huh. That is one issue that we will absolutely keep our eyes on. As, as you mentioned before, a lot can change in the next two years. We don't know uh, what, what Congress is going to look like after the midterm elections of, uh, of 2018. Um, we don't know uh, what the White House's priorities will be going forward in the next two years. But assuming that, um, that, that the Trump administration is able to continue to, um, to put judges, to fill these vacancies, to put new judges onto the circuit courts, what are you going to be looking at to, to assess, assess the impact of, of those judges? What, what are going to be the early signs uh, beyond what we've talked about today that, that people should pay attention to? Well, I think we'll be looking for additional examples of the kind of opinions that we've been talking about. Do judges write separate concurring opinions saying, we, our court should reconsider this precedent? Do they write sort of invitations to the Supreme Court to reconsider precedent? Do they write invitations to Congress saying this is something that the courts really shouldn't be deciding at all, but that Congress should take up? I mean, we have a lot of actors in Washington, D.C., who sometimes do not do their jobs, and that's why the courts have to resolve some of these issues. Arthur, thank you so much. This was an absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, I, I urge everyone to go check out the Reuters courting change graphic, and as Arthur said, come to your own conclusions about, uh, about the significance of, uh, of the president's record-setting pace of appellate appointments. Thank you again, Arthur. Well, thank you, Allison. It's really been a pleasure.